this morning. Um, I am not going to review the disciplines, um, and neither is Melissa. Sarah Demarest is teaching us, and so she's going to just incorporate that into her lesson. Um, for those of you, I think probably all of you know Sarah, but just in case, I'll let you guys know. Sarah Demarest has, well, she is married to Scott Demarest, who is one of our pastor elders at our church, and if my calculations and memory are correct, I think he's been one since 2007. Oh, okay, okay. So I think, yeah, 2007 seems about right. Um, so he's been pastoring and eldering here for quite a while, and we're so thankful for that. Um, they raised their three children uh, while being a part of our church. And recently, her husband Scott has retired, and now he is taking seminary classes at TES. So that is really exciting for both of them. It's a different, probably a very different case for both of you. So we're thankful for that. Um, Sarah was one of the beginning um, curriculum developers, I guess I would say, for Wellspring. And this is one of the reasons I admire Sarah. She did this. She was putting it together and teaching weekly. Our schedule, our format for Wellspring used to be weekly when it first started. She was doing all that while she had two seniors in high school living in her home. I just, that blows my mind. I can't even imagine doing that. Um, but it also makes me so thankful that God gives us all different abilities and gifts, and that's how he has gifted Sarah. Um, she is a very diligent student of the Word. She loves God's Word, and she's um, just good at understanding it, digging in, and then expressing it and teaching it. So you'll get to see that today, and I'm sure you've heard her, many of you have heard her teach before. So Sarah, you can come on up, and she has a new lesson for us. This is a, we're so excited about this, it's kind of a survey, I'll let her explain it more, but um, it's a foundational discipline to lesson for us. So we're so excited to have her teach us this new lesson for Wellspring. Good morning. Such a blessing to be here with you all. Um, I'm going to make an announcement on my husband's behalf. He asked me to let you know that he's teaching next time. And because he's taking TEF classes, as Janet said, he will be, he has to take a quiz at 10 o'clock in Greek. And he didn't know that when he committed to teaching. So he is going to be up here praying and starting teaching at 9.15. So he just said, let the ladies know. That's what I'm doing. So there you go. There's your little encouragement. Because he doesn't want to be late for his quiz. Isn't that weird when you're in your 50s to have to make sure you're in class on time to take your quiz? But that's, that's where what he's at. That's where we're at. Um, all right. I would like to pray, and then we will look at God's Word together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for you. You are eternal in the heavens. You know everything. You are perfect in all your ways. You are perfectly wise. You have all power. And Lord, how astounding that you are a God of mercy and grace, that you would purpose before the foundations of the world to purchase rebels out of our sin and make us your children by putting all of the judgment we deserve on your son. Oh Jesus, thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for satisfying the Father's wrath on, wrath on our behalf and thank you for rising from the dead and even now um, being alive at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. 
Father, I pray that you would let this time in your word grow each of us in our love for you and our desire for you and our dependence on you and our obedience towards you and our delight to honor you in whatever household situation and family you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, just a little up front. The, the outline is long, um, and so we may not actually talk about every single reference on there, but you'll have it if there's something there that you either I go by too quickly or that we pass over. It'll be there for you to be able to look at more on your own. Okay. Our lesson today is a biblical survey of the household and family. And that just means we're going to walk through God's word, beginning with Genesis, and we're going to let God tell us what his design is for the household and family. So a little spoiler alert, after we do that, we're going to look at the implications of what God has designed for the household. And the implications are that we need to be diligent with the Wellspring disciplines, and so we will talk about those at the end. Now I'm going to begin by reading some phrases from scripture, and I want you to listen for the family language that's used. Isaiah 62.5 says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God will rejoice over you. In Psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In Mark 1.11, the, the God the Father says to Jesus, You are my beloved Son. And then Jesus says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me in Matthew 26. 1 John 3.1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Revelation 19 says the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then finally in 1 Timothy 5, do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Did you notice all of the words related to the family? Throughout scripture, God uses family relationships to describe much greater relationships, eternal relationships, within the Godhead and between God and his people and between one believer and another. <clears throat> and that gives weight to our household and family relationships because these relationships are pointing to something far beyond us. Now today's lesson will help us see how close to the heart of God the household and family are. So let's look at number two, various kinds of households in God's word. What do you think of when you think of your family or household? Is it the people you live with or the people you grew up with? Maybe people you raised and who've moved away? Does it include extended family? You know, in today's world, many voices are seeking to redefine the family. That's not what we're doing here. The family is God's design. He created it, and he has a right to define it and direct it and use it according to his will. But scripture itself describes different kinds of households and families. 
And so as we look at different kinds of families in scripture, we are not justifying defining the household in any way that we want, but rather we just want to see the unique opportunities that God has for each of us in whatever household situation he's placed us in. So here's just a sample of households found in God's word. You have these in your notes. Before the fall, the only family on earth consisted of a husband and a wife, Adam and Eve. And there's a basic nuclear family, such as Isaac, Rebecca, and their sons. Sadly, there are unloved wives in scripture, like Jacob's wife, Leah. We find extended family. When Joseph brought all of his relatives to Egypt, including his father, brothers, sisters, in-laws, nephews, nieces, and their children, Ruth and Naomi formed their own little household as a daughter-in-law and mother-in-law when they were both widowed. Boaz and Ruth are an example of remarriage and intercultural marriage. There are families formed by adoption, such as Mordecai and Esther. Zacharias and Elizabeth struggled with infertility. Anna was a widow who never remarried. There were multi-generational families, like Peter's mother-in-law living in his house. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were adult siblings all living in the same household. Lydia was probably a single woman serving as the head of her household. And there were marriages in which one spouse was a believer and the other was not. This was probably the case for Timothy's parents. And we're taught that single men and women have a unique opportunity for undistracted devotion to the Lord because of different household responsibilities than those who are married. Tabitha and Phoebe may have been women for whom this was the case. Every family and household situation comes with its own challenges and opportunities. All families have been impacted by sin and its consequences ever since the fall in Genesis 3. But ultimately, God is sovereign over our family and household circumstances. It's our responsibility to be pleasing to him in our household and family, whatever that may be. And in so doing, we get to point to something much greater than our home. We get to point to the God who created the home and invites all to come to him and be part of his household through the cross of Christ. So now let's move to number three and survey God's word to better understand the priority God places on the family and household. Now in most cases, we will just skim the surface of these verses to highlight what they tell us about the family. Though I love to sit uh, with our Bibles open together, that might not be the most helpful thing for you today to try to flip to every one of the references. If I refer to something that's not familiar, you can always go back and look at those passages on your own. But also let it be an encouragement to make the ongoing discipline of reading through all of God's word just a regular ongoing part of your Christian life. Uh, because in reading God's word year after year, it actually grows your familiarity with scripture and helps you see the flow throughout scripture of different themes like the household. Um, and at times also throughout the lesson, lesson, we will slow down and dig a little deeper and um, I'll let you know and so we'll turn to some of those passages together if you'd like. All right, we'll make a number of observations and many of them will fall into several different categories that you have listed at the top of page two. For example, we'll see God's design and purpose for the household and family. We'll see the household's vulnerability to sin. 
We'll see responsibilities and opportunities related to the household and family. And as important as the family is, we will see that God must be honored above the household and family. So it will be helpful to think of these categories as different colored threads that are woven throughout the pages of scripture. At times we'll see the God's design thread come out. And then in other passages, we'll see that vulnerability to sin thread. Um, other passages will highlight the responsibilities thread or the opportunities thread. These are all woven together throughout the pages of scripture and together they reveal God's heart for the household. And so especially at the beginning, I'll try to point out which thread it is that we're pulling out, but um, hopefully that'll kind of give you something to hang on to as we walk through uh, a lot of scripture. All right, so from the very beginning, God is the one who created the family, defined the family, and gave purpose to the family. So we'll begin with Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In verse 28, he commanded them to be fruitful and fill the earth and rule over all the animals. So mankind, male and female, are to be fruitful and they're to fill the earth. Now in Genesis 2, God reveals more about the relationship between the man and the woman. Verse 18 in verse 18, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So God took one of the man's ribs, and verse 22 says that he fashioned into a woman the rib, which he had taken from the man, and then he brought her to the man. Uh, verse 24 explains God's purpose in doing that. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, God established marriage and the family as the first and most fundamental relationship of society, one in which two distinct people, one man and one woman, become one flesh. This is the first family. It's the only family that ever existed before sin entered the world, and it was a husband and a wife. Genesis 2 shows us that God created men and women to have distinct roles in the family. The husband is the head of his wife. We'll see when we get to Ephesians 5 that a man is to imitate Christ's self-giving love as he leads his wife. The wife is to be a suitable helper to her husband, imitating the church's devotion to Christ. We'll study that more closely when we get to the New Testament, but it's important to understand that this was God's good design for the family from the very beginning, before there was ever any sin in the world. Husband and wife, equally created in God's image, but with different roles. The family is God's means of filling the earth and ruling over it, and Genesis 1 and 2 shines forth this thread of God's design for the household. Okay, so that's kind of our first thread shining through. In Genesis 3, the vulnerability to sin thread, the vulnerability to sin thread comes out. The in verse 1, the serpent tempted the first family by saying to Eve, Indeed, has God said, insinuating that God could not be trusted. Eve allowed herself to be deceived. She and Adam both ate the forbidden fruit, and the whole world fell headlong under the dominion and curse of sin. And all of creation, including the family, has been plagued by that ever since. Sin brought curses and consequences from God that impacted the family. Pain came to childbirth. 
and sweat and toil came to provision. At the same time, we also see the thread of God's purposes. In verse 15, God promised that he would provide a seed, a descendant of this family who would crush the serpent. This is the first promise in scripture that points to the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis 4, this family grew to include children. Verse 1 says the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And then verse 2, she gave birth to another son, Abel. As God brought children into this family, we again see the thread of God's purpose. God was giving, what, giving them what they needed to fill the earth. And he was also continuing the family line through which the promised seed, the Messiah, would come. Tragically, this first family was scarred by sin again when Cain killed Abel, brother murdering brother, again displaying the vulnerability thread in the household. In Genesis 5, God marks history by recording the generations of this family. This historical record would be a way that future generations could trace God's faithfulness to keep his seed promise, his promise to crush the serpent. In Genesis 6 through 9, God judged the world with a flood, but he extended mercy and preserved the line of the promised seed by preserving Noah and his family on the ark, including his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law. In Genesis 10 and 11, when Noah's descendants were dispersed after the Tower of Babel, God dispersed them according to their families. Chapter 10, verse 5 gives an example of this. From these, he's referring to the sons of Japheth, Noah's son, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families. What a kindness of the Lord. Family groups could communicate with one another even after God confused the speech of all the people on the, on the earth. Both in the flood and the Tower of Babel, God's judgment was right. But God also extended mercy by preserving families. In Genesis 12, God called out Abram, later named Abraham, to leave his country and his relatives and his father's house and go to the land which God would show him, bringing some of his family members along. He both left family and brought family with him. We see that family, as important as it is, is still subordinate to God's authority in a person's life. This is another one of the threads that shows us God's intent for the household and family. In Genesis, also in Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants that they would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God didn't just make the promise with Abraham. He made it with the generations of his family which would follow him also. And that covenant was another expression of God's promise to bring the Messiah. The Messiah would come through Abraham's family, and the Messiah would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So we've seen several different threads related to the household. The family is God's design to fulfill his purpose, including bringing forth the Messiah. The family is vulnerable to sin, and the family must be subordinate to God and his rule in his people's lives. And in Genesis 18, we see another thread. This is an essential responsibility that God has for the family. In verse 19, God said regarding Abraham, I have chosen him so that 
he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So God designed the family and the household to be a place of evangelism and discipleship. As God is worshipped, feared, and obeyed in the home, the people in that household are taught the goodness of God's character and the rightness of obeying him. But again, we see the vulnerability of the household. Abraham brought great strife and harm to his family through his sin and unbelief. In Genesis 12 and again in Genesis 20, he lied, saying that his wife was just his sister, exposing her to the advances of other men. And he listened to his wife rather than leading her to trust God and took Hagar as his concubine, introducing strife into his household that continues even to the present. Even though Abraham was a man of faith, his sin brought great harm to his family. Now, thankfully, Abraham's sin couldn't take away his faith. In Genesis 22:2, God said to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering. Now, not only was Isaac Abraham's beloved son, he was the son through whom God had promised to fulfill his covenant with Abraham. But Abraham trusted the Lord, and he obeyed, even at the risk of losing his beloved son. He understood that he must not let even his love for his family hinder his submission to God. And his obedience resulted in blessing for his family. In Genesis 22, the Lord said, Because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you. Verse 18 says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. See, Abraham's family illustrates for us both the harm that sin brings to the family, as well as the blessing that can come from obedience. These threads appear over and over again. <clears throat> In Genesis 39-50, through 50, several generations after Abraham, Jacob's family was riddled with deceit rivalry, sexual immorality, favoritism, and hatred. The brothers' hatred for their brother Joseph ultimately erupted in them selling him into slavery. But as Joseph trusted God and his sovereignty, God used him to save the lives of his entire extended family, including the brothers who had done him such harm. And in saving this family, God again preserved the family line of the Messiah. Now that's just the book of Genesis. And yet over and over again, it's clear that the family is a fundamental unit that God has ordained for his good purposes on the earth. For filling the earth, for bringing forth the Messiah who will bless all the nations of the earth, for instruction in the way of the Lord, teaching those in the household to know him and obey him, and it's a means for provision and protection. At the same time, the family suffers under the consequences of sin, and very often they are self-inflicted blows. As we continue through scripture, we find in Exodus that several generations after Jacob's family moved to Egypt, Pharaoh began to oppress them. God raised up a deliverer for them in Moses and led them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, 
and there he made a new covenant with Jacob's family that had by this time grown to become a nation. In the Ten Commandments, excuse me, in this covenant, this um, Mosaic covenant, God continued to show the priority which he places on the household and family. In the Ten Commandments, children are commanded to honor their parents. Adultery is forbidden and other people's households are not to be coveted. The household was where Israel was to pass on the remembrance of God's mighty deeds to future generations. Families were to observe feasts, such as the Passover together, and God gave specific regulations for relationships in both the immediate and the extended family. As we saw with, and as we saw with Abraham, the household in Israel was to be a place where faith was lived out in word and deed, where those in the household were instructed in the ways of the Lord. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll read together beginning in verse 4. Okay. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's just a way of describing discipline one that we talk about in Wellspring. And then in verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, that's discipline too. We see that the household was to be a place where God's people led their own hearts to love God and fear God and obey God so that they could lead their households to do the same. At the same time, God warned Israel about dangers in the home. He forbade them from intermarrying with those who do not follow the one true God. Deuteronomy 7 says that if they do intermarry, these foreign idolatrous wives will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. See, an unbelieving spouse can turn those in the home away from following the Lord. This is a distortion of God's good design for the household. Rather than being a place of worship, and teaching and discipleship, it can become a place of idolatry and rebellion against the one true God. God also warned Israel that the household can be the very place where God is forgotten. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses described a time when they, that's coming when they'll be living in the promised land and their households will prosper. And he says in verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. So here's that vulnerability threat again. The household that God would give them in the promised land where he would bless them so richly would become the very place that could easily forget God. And they needed to be aware of that so that they could guard against it, just as we must be aware of that danger and guard against it. It's very easy to forget God in the home. Again and again, we see these threads, vulnerability, responsibilities, opportunities, um, and they just keep weaving through all these different eras of scripture. In the era of the kings, which is recorded in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, there are many examples of righteous influences in the household, 
as well as of sin's devastating consequences on the household. And oftentimes it's in the very same family. In 1 Samuel 2, Eli, a judge and a priest in Eli, excuse me, in Israel, Eli was a judge and a priest in Israel, he failed to restrain his sons from sinning in their temple service. And God said to him in 1 Samuel 2, 27, why do you honor your sons above me? See, in allowing his sons to continue in sin, Eli was despising God, verse 30 says. As a consequence, God judged Eli's household forever. This family was entrusted with this great privilege of temple service, but even they were not immune from sin and its consequences. Once again, right alongside the vulnerability thread, though, we see the opportunity thread as God's people trust and obey him. In 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah bore the heartache of childlessness, as well as being provoked by the other wife of her husband. But Hannah sought the Lord in her affliction. She prayed. She worshipped the Lord. She didn't allow the hardships of her family life to take, away her, take her away from trusting the Lord. Hannah encourages us that the Lord is sufficient for us regardless of our family situation. We can pour out all of our heartache to him and continue in obedience. In 1 Samuel 25, Abigail was married to a harsh, worthless, foolish man who insulted David and incited David to seek revenge. But through Abigail's wisdom and humble faith in the Lord, her household was preserved from destruction, and the future King David was restrained from sin. Abigail encourages us that there is no household that can't benefit from our trusting obedience to the Lord. Now let's turn to 2 Kings 5, where we'll read about Naaman's slave girl. Okay, verse 1 says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master and highly respected because by him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior, but he was a leper. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. So just think about what has happened to a family here. A family in Israel had a little girl who was captured and enslaved by a foreign army. Can we even begin to grasp the anguish and the devastation that that would bring to her family. And how terrifying for this child. And yet, even as a servant of her captor, we don't see fear or hostility or anger. No, this little girl wanted good for her master. 
And as a result, Naaman received not only healing, but something much greater. He came to know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, and that he alone is worthy of worship. All because of the faithfulness of this little Israelite slave girl in his home. The only way this little girl could have responded to her circumstances as she did was if her family had taught her to trust and follow the one true God. So let that be an encouragement to us. We must have no greater priority in our home but to raise up our children to know the trustworthiness of the Lord. And we must also be challenged by this little girl. If she could respond by doing good to this man, how much more can we rely on God's grace to do good to those in our household? Well, now let's turn to 2 Chronicles 22. This is, we're going to begin with uh, verse 10. But this is one of the darkest times in the history of God's people. And respect for God's purposes for the household had been completely trampled on. In 1 Kings 16, Ahab, the king of the northern kingdom, or Israel, sinned against God by marrying Jezebel, a foreign wife who was a Baal worshiper. We saw in Deuteronomy 7 that God had forbidden that. 1 Kings 21-25 describes the terrible influence Jezebel had on her husband. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment. But if that were not enough, they had a daughter, Athaliah, who married into the royal family of the southern kingdom, called Judah. Sadly, she brought her sinful influ- the sinful influence of her family with her, and her husband did evil in the sight of the Lord because of her evil that included murdering all of his brothers. Predictably, their son also did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now in verse 10 of 2 Chronicles 22, we'll pick up with what happened in this family after their son Ahaziah was killed. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring of the house of Judah. She killed her grandchildren so that she could reign over the land. She very nearly succeeded in extinguishing the line of David, the Messiah, the the line of the Messiah. But she is just one link in a chain of evil working in the royal families of Israel and Judah. These families had long since departed from following the Lord. They had become thoroughly self-grasping and God-hating and their households bore the consequences of their sin. But in the midst of all this wickedness, we find a courageous woman. Verse 11 says, But Jehoshabeth, the king's daughter, she was probably Athaliah's stepdaughter, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, that would have been her nephew, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death. Verse 12 says that he, Joash, was hidden with them, that's with Jehoshabeth and her husband, who was a priest, and he was hidden with them in the house of God six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Jehoshabeth courageously 
rescued and protected her nephew, preserving the line of the Messiah. Ultimately, he was made king, Athaliah was killed, and the throne of Judah was returned to the line of David. So those are just a few examples from the time of the kings, but again we see that God must be honored above the family and in the family. We've seen sin's awful impact on the household and family, and we've seen the influence that faith in God has on the household and family, even in households plagued by sin. So now let's keep moving through the pages of scripture and make some observations from the Psalms. So go ahead and turn to Psalm 78. We're going to read beginning in verse 4. And as we read, really try to listen to all the different generations that are described. He refers back to past generations, and he also refers to future generations that haven't even been born yet. So verse 4 says, We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers a stubborn and rebellious generation a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God do you see the privilege and the responsibility that believers have to future generations to declare God's greatness and to disciple them, the psalmist is committed to teaching the future generations. And those future generations must teach those not yet born to put their confidence in God, to not forget his works, to keep his commandments, and to not be like their ancestors who were stubborn and rebellious. What a great responsibility and privilege to pass on the knowledge and fear of the Lord to generation after generation after generation. Proverbs is full of wisdom for the household. It's it is instruction from a father to his children. Parents are taught to lovingly teach and discipline their children so that their children will learn the fear of the Lord and both doctrinal and practical wisdom. Children are exhorted to carefully heed and treasure wise instruction from their parents. Proverbs also instructs in what makes godly husbands and wives, and it warns of the harm that comes to a household when God's wisdom is rejected. So that's all we're going to look at in the Old Testament. But now as we turn to the New Testament, we're going to continue to see these same threads that have been woven throughout the Old. So first we come to the Gospels and the fulfillment of the seed promise in Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and save us from our sins. Jesus is identified as the Messiah by his family line. That's why his genealogies are in the Gospel. Jesus was also raised in a family and he lived in subjection to his earthly parents. But that is not the end of the family. 
as we continue in the New Testament, we will continue to see these same threads. Um, the importance of honoring God above the family comes forward in the Gospels. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 10, verse 34. Okay, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he, does not, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Jesus is making a strong point that the gospel of the kingdom is first and everything else is second, including our family. When one person in a household comes to Christ, they're called to go take that gospel to their family and household. And sometimes the whole family comes to Christ. But Jesus is teaching that that is not always the case. When we bring the gospel to our family, we might find that the members of our household become our enemies. And if the family begins to stand in the way of a believer's faithfulness to God, the believer must follow Christ and not the family, even while she stays in that family, loving others and obeying Jesus. The family and household relationships are under the gospel. So we love and serve those closest to us because of the gospel's impact on our lives. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 7 to bring more perspective on this relationship between following Jesus and our household, and then we'll come back to the Gospels. Okay, now on one hand, we saw in Deuteronomy <coughs> that there is great potential for harm to the household if a believer disobediently marries an unbeliever. However, when there, is a, when there is a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, perhaps one person gets saved after they're married, God graciously uses the believer to be a means of godly influence in that home. 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse, beginning in 12, says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. The work of God in his people is so powerful that it can have a sanctifying effect on the unbelievers in the home. So in faithfulness to Jesus, the believer stays in the home as she follows Jesus. So our identity in Christ is over our family identity. So what does that mean practically? Well, if we put our identity in Christ under our family identity, we will find ourselves using our family as an excuse for disobedience and sin. We saw that with Eli when he honored his sons above God. We might justify sinful patterns in our life based on how we were raised, like, well, my family always argued, 
or I just come from a line of hot tempers. But when we place our family identity under our identity in Christ, then it's Christ's work in us that gets brought into our household instead of vice versa. That, that needs to be the direction of influence. What Christ is doing in us needs to be an influence on the home. There's no better way to love those in our household than to keep our affections for Christ first in our heart. Faithfulness to Christ is the most loving thing we can do for our household. And we see this in Luke 8. This is an example of one who, out of love and obedience to Christ, was faithful with the gospel in his home. In Luke 8, Jesus sailed to the Gerasenes, and he was met by a demon-possessed man who was totally out of control. When Jesus commanded the demon to leave the man, the man came to his senses, and he just was sitting at Jesus' feet. But as Jesus prepared to leave, the man begged to go with him. But Jesus answered him in Luke 8, 39, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Jesus wanted this man to proclaim what Christ had done to his home. Now, as we turn to the book of Acts, we find that in some cases, God draws whole households to follow Jesus. Go ahead and turn to Acts 10. We're going to take a look at Cornelius and the influence that he had on his household. Okay. So in Acts 10.1, it says, Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man, and one who feared God with all his household. Cornelius and his Gentile household were worshipers of the one true God, but they hadn't heard about Jesus yet. In a vision, Cornelius was directed by a holy angel to send for Peter to bring a message. And so he did. And when Peter arrived, verse 24 says, Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Cornelius knew that God had a message for him, he didn't keep it to himself. He called together his relatives and his friends to hear too. In verse 33, he said, We're all here present before God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. So Peter preached the gospel to them. He proclaimed forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 44 says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Acts 11.1 1 says that they received the word of God. They were born again. They came to faith in Christ and were baptized. Cornelius brought his relatives and friends together to hear the gospel, and the Lord was pleased to save them all. Sometimes that's what the Lord does. He uses one person in a household to influence others for the gospel, and sometimes whole households are saved. Do you see the impact that we can have on our household because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we love his word? We can't save anyone, but we have the message that does save, and we have the privilege of bringing that message to the people in our family and household, and that's what needs to be our desire. Now, as we continue through the New Testament, we find specific commands related to the family. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 5. 
Ephesians 5 speaks of the marriage relationship. Uh, in verse 22, we read, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, I think uh, this was covered last time in the Titus 2 lesson, and we also saw, uh, saw in Genesis 2 this morning that this is rooted in God's original design for marriage in the family, even before sin entered the world. The church's submission to Christ is the model for a wife's submission to her husband. Believers submit to Christ in light of all that he has done for us in the gospel. As a new creation, we find his authority to be a joy. He equips us to submit to him, to trust his protection and care. And in that light, submission is a joy. And that is the kind of submission that we want to bring to our marriage. A woman looks beyond her husband to Christ. Out of reverence for Jesus, we submit to Jesus, and therefore we also submit to our husband. And Ephesians 5 also addresses the husband and the incredibly high calling to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has a responsibility to protect and provide and shepherd his wife and family. And we make that high calling a joy for our husband when we daily entrust ourselves to Jesus and joyfully submit to him. Ephesians 6 then speaks to relationships between parents and children. Children, obey your parents. Verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction in the Lord. Now, this is a repeat of the fifth commandment from the Ten Commandments, now brought under the authority of Christ for his church. First, Paul addresses children. Obey your parents in the Lord. We must help our children obey and honor their parents as a way of honoring the Lord. And then in verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. <clears throat> Parents have the responsibility and privilege to show their children how great God is. To bring them to God's word with joy and wonder and an eagerness to believe and obey themselves, even as they teach their children to know and obey God. Our faithfulness with discipline and instruction in our home guards us from frustrating our children. The New Testament also shows a responsibility to honor and care for our parents as adult children. Um, Jesus himself committed the care of his mother to the Apostle John when he was on the cross in John 19. 1 Timothy 5.4 says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Both in Old Testament and New Testament, God places a priority on his people's faithfulness in their family and household relationships. Now this will look different in different seasons of life and in different households. But the principle is that a believer's relationship with the Lord must inform and influence our household and family relationships. 
It's so important, our household relationships are so important that as you saw last week in Titus 2, it's an essential part of our ministry as women. Faithfulness in our household and family influences how others think about God's word. Faithfulness in household relationships is also a qualification for elder leadership. 1 Timothy 3 says that in order to be elder qualified, a man must be faithful in his marriage, and he must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. That is how important household relationships are to God. They're a measure of a man's qualification to lead others. But as was true in the Old Testament, the New Testament also warns of the vulnerability of the household to sin. Titus 1, 10 and 11 tell us that rebellious men must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. The family is vulnerable to the influence and teaching of those who reject the gospel either in word or deed. That's one of the reasons why our elders work so hard to teach us the truth. They are fortifying our households against the harmful effects of false teaching. And 2 Timothy 3 describes the danger that self-loving men pose to the household. These men hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And they're to be avoided because, uh, verse 6 says, among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sin. This is a warning that we as women must particularly heed. We have a responsibility to protect ourselves and our households against false religious influences. And we must do that by being careful and diligent with our own walk with the Lord. To be diligent not just to hear the word, but to be doers of it in our thoughts and in our words and in our actions. Finally, the New Testament describes many ways in which the home was involved in the life of the church. See, God's design for the home is not just to be focused on ourselves, but that as we're functioning well in our homes, that gives us a platform for participating well in the life of the body of Christ. So in Acts 2, believers shared meals together in their homes. The gospel was proclaimed from house to house in Acts 5. In Acts 12, Mary, the mother of John Mark, hosted a prayer meeting in her home when Peter was in prison. Lydia welcomed Paul and Silas into her home. The household of Stephanus devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. And households hosted churches and gave lodging to gospel ministers. Very often, the household is the place where body life in the church happens where believers live out the one another's in scripture. Even in homes where not everyone is a believer, there are wonderful opportunities to show the unbelievers in that home the sweet fellowship that believers share with one another. So the household doesn't exist just for itself. God has designed the home to be his instrument in the life of the church as well. So that brings us to our implications. Number four. So we've seen today that the home is precious to God. What a privilege to honor God in our homes, embracing the roles that God has given us and declaring his greatness and serving and protecting from sinful influences. But how can we ever live up to such a high calling? How can we walk in humble wisdom like Abigail 
or trusting faith like Hannah or loving concern like that little slave girl, we can only do so through ongoing reliance on the Lord and his grace. Discipline one, the heart, says the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. As we draw near to God in his word and draw near to God in his word and through prayer day after day, God works in our hearts to make us more like Christ. He helps us change our thinking, our priorities, our desires, so that our words and our actions become more and more like Christ. And in beholding God in his word, we are fortified to die to ourselves so that we put Christ on display in our household relationships. Discipline 2, the home says, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. See, God's priority for the household must be our priority for the household. Our households are vulnerable to sin. They're vulnerable to our sin. And our household is the first place that should benefit from our humble, faithful walk with Jesus. It's in looking to Jesus that we find joy in serving and shepherding those with whom we live. Finally, Discipline 3, Ministry, says, With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. See, faithfulness in our home strengthens the church. It may be helping those in our household to be ready to participate in the life of the church, helping manage our schedule or helping little ones learn to um, let them help them practice sitting and listening. Um, faithfulness in our home also frees our home for ministry to be a place where others can be encouraged and fellowship around God's word. So whatever your household or your family looks like, be encouraged that it is exactly where God has placed you to be his instrument as you love and as you serve and as you declare the greatness of our God and the privilege of following Jesus. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so rich. Lord, thank you for showing us that our households matter to you, that you do care about how we live there. Oh, Father, we know we have nothing in ourselves to give those in our household, but I pray that you would make us women who cling tightly to you, who drink deeply um, in our time with, with you, in your word, that we might be those who give off the aroma of Christ and shine the light of the gospel in all that we say and do in our homes. And we pray that you'd be pleased to bring much fruit there. In Jesus' name, amen.